Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of RealSimple.com. According to a Newsweek estimate, 15 to 20 percent of married couples define their marriage as sexless, meaning they have sex less than 10 times a year. And according to data science, the top searched marriage complaint on Google is sexless marriage, which is searched for eight times more than loveless marriage. So with 2016 right around the corner, I thought it would be a good time to talk about resolutions that we can make about our sex lives. How do we set ourselves up for sexual success this year and not get into sexual ruts? Joining me today to talk about how often couples should aim to have sex and why sex is important for happy, healthy partnerships are Ian Kerner, a sex therapist and author of several books, including the ebook 52 Weeks of Amazing Sex. Also joining me is Amy Muse, a social psychologist and postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto, who has been the lead researcher on a number of sex studies. Hi, Ian. Hey, Lori. Hi, Amy. Hi, Lori. I'm so happy you both are here today. Amy, I want to start with you. You recently conducted a study that was published in the journal Social, Psychological, and Personality Science, and that found that sex once a week is the ideal amount for maximum relationship happiness. Can you talk about that study and how you came to those conclusions? Sure. So what we actually found in the study was that how frequently couples had sex was associated with their overall feelings of happiness. But this was no longer true after a frequency of about once a week. So if you're visualizing this, it's almost like a pattern of a sort of increase and then leveling off at a frequency of around once a week. So I just want to point out that it wasn't necessarily bad for well-being to have sex more frequently than once a week but it didn't seem to increase people's happiness on average, which I think in some ways goes against some of the popular messages that we hear that, you know, the more frequently you have sex, the better you feel and kind of that there's like limitless benefits to sex. And so what this, what the findings sort of suggested to me was it's important to maintain this sexual connection with your partner, but you can also have realistic expectations. So it's not that you have to be engaging in sex every day to maximize your happiness, as long as you're sort of keeping that connection going. And Amy, how did you define sex in the study? Was it actual intercourse or was it any kind of, you know, sexual engagement? That's a good question. So in two of the studies, these were nationally representative data sets that were conducted in the U.S. So these weren't data sets that we developed the questions for. So these studies did ask about sexual intercourse, but we conducted one of the studies ourselves. And we asked about sex and let participants define what that meant to them. And the results were consistent across those studies. So I definitely don't think that this needs to be sexual intercourse. Um, I know from other work that I've done that partners can connect in those same ways from other types of sexual activities or even affectionate behaviors in some cases. So it's not, it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual intercourse. Ian, if we look at Amy's research and we agree that once a week seems to be a great something to shoot for for couples and that it seems to correlate with happiness. Does that seem like a realistic goal for you, to you for most people? It does. I mean, I, uh, I'm i really happy that, this, that Amy did this research because uh, for years I've sort of been intuitively telling couples when they say, how often should we be having sex? And it's a really 
difficult question. It has so much to do with uh, libido and temperament and lifestyle and, and age. It's really so hard to put a number on it, but people still want a number. And uh, I really have been saying once a week because I feel like, you know, if you don't have sex once a week, then one week becomes two weeks. And then two weeks can really be easily become three weeks. Then you're sort of in the habit of not having sex and you end up as one of those statistics in sexless marriages. And uh, sex ruts beget sex ruts and sex begets sex. So I appreciate that uh, Amy is saying that more than once a week there isn't necessarily uh, a benefit. And, and that may in fact be be true on some level. But I have noticed that when you do have sex consistently and regularly, when you turn that into a habit, that A, you are more connected, you're more eroticized, and your body is actually um, producing more testosterone. So it wouldn't be surprising to me if all the couples who are having sex once a week, if they start having sex a little more than once a week as well, because like I said, sex begets sex. And yet, as the data that I read in the intro that 15 to 20 percent of married couples define their marriage as sexless, we can, you know, infer that there are a lot of people in sex ruts and that the once a week is not being met by many, many people. What can those people who maybe have been in ruts for quite a long time do to get out of them? Well, I mean, first off, I think you have to put on sort of your detective cap and be a little bit of, of a Sherlock Holmes and sort of decide, well, uh, why why are we stuck in a sex rut? And there's any number of reasons why people get stuck in sex ruts. I mean, you can be a new parent who's tired and busy. You can be uh, unemployed and feeling depressed. Um, you can be on a medication that has sexual side effects. You can be uh, overweight, out of shape. Sex is sort of like um, sexual desire, Lori. It's sort of like the, the, the stock market. You know how the stock market just factors in everything, every <laughs> dynamic, and it gets represented? I mean, I feel like sexual desire is sort of the stock market on our lives. It goes up, it goes down, according to so many factors and dynamics. So the first thing that I would ask somebody to think about mindfully is, why are you in a sex rut? Amy, you've also talked and conducted research on the benefits of what you call sexual communal strength. Can you talk about what that means and how this fits into how couples can think about their sex lives and maybe even planning for sex? Sure. So sexual communal strength is the term that we use to talk about being motivated to be responsive to a partner's sexual needs. So for the listeners out there that are familiar with Dan Savage, you might think of the term GGG, which is good giving and game. So being good in bed, um, being giving in terms of being a giving sexual partner, and then being game for anything within reason. So the sexual communal strength idea sort of gets at this giving and game. So in a long-term relationship, it's unusual that partners will always feel the exact same levels of desire at the same time. So it's important to be responsive to your partner's needs, sometimes potentially when you don't have high personal desire for sex. So in the work on sexual communal strength, we've looked at this motivation. And there's definitely people that approach their relationships being more motivated to meet their partner's sexual needs. And we found that not only do the partners of these people benefit, so their partners feel more satisfied and even more committed to the relationships, 
but the people themselves who are high in sexual communal strength also reap benefits. So they're more likely to maintain higher levels of desire over time in their relationships. And they're also more likely to approach these kinds of sexual decisions. So situations where their partner's interested in sex, but their own personal desire might be lower. They approach these situations in a way that seems to benefit both them and their partners. So they're more willing to meet their partner's needs. And also people who have this communal motivation, they're more understanding when their partner has to decline sex as well, which is also important. So they potentially don't hold on to that resentment as much, and then they leave the door open more for these sexual connections in the future. My wife calls it charity sex. Okay, so that's another easy, <laughs> non-scientific way of saying Although it. she hasn't been that charitable in 2015. <laughs> okay, well, that's <laughs> another to... podcast. We'll bring her in for the next one. Um, well, I have to ask, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, Amy and Ian, that it's, you know, sexual communal strength as a concept sounds, you know, interesting, and it's interesting that data backs up that it's beneficial for both, um, you know, the person who's initiating and the person who's you know, not. But I think it also brings up a lot of tricky questions about, if not about consent, about, you know, like, should I have to have sex if I don't want to? Is it, you know, when do you, where and when is that line where you are, you know, are just doing it out of obligation and not really any desire? it's it's interesting that you bring that up, and I'm really moving towards the position that we need to maybe expand or redefine our our ideas around um, consent, because, you know, in in a previous podcast I did with you, I talked a little bit about the difference between spontaneous and responsive desire. And as a culture, we really enshrine this notion of spontaneous desire, that we should really just see our partner and be ready to pull off our clothes and uh, jump into bed. And that sex begins with desire. And the story of sex, desire is once upon a time. But what science and studies and research are really showing is that more and more both women and men experience responsive desire. And what that means is that rather than just sort of emerging from nowhere, you know, you meet so many people who say, I want to want sex, but I just don't want it. So rather than sex coming from nowhere, there's this idea that, well, arousal precedes desire and that once you put your body through the motions, that your mind really will catch up and that desire isn't the beginning of the sexual story. It really may be the middle of the sexual story. So if you say to yourself that, well, at the heart of consent is desire, I choose to have sex, I choose to want to have sex, well, then maybe if you're you're moving from a spontaneous model to a responsive model, Uh, Maybe you have to say to yourself something like, well, I'm not exactly choosing to have sex or desiring to have sex, but I am kind of willing because I trust that desire will emerge from that. So I think we do have to sort of expand, uh, especially in a loving, uh, monogamous sex life. Yeah, I think we need to make that different, you know, differentiate there. I'm talking that like consent has to start you know, we're talking about loving, maybe right. not even monogamous relationships. We're not talking about absolutely. Things, we're know. not talking about consent as it gets talked about these days on college campuses, or if we're talking about sexual assaults or rapes or absolutely. anything like that. Let's just but make you, that. But clear. you did bring up, you did use the word consent as yeah. to be in yeah. terms of like, hey, well, there's I'm different a, meanings. Yeah, yeah, I'm in a relationship with somebody. I 
we're happy. I want to want to have sex. I believe in the importance of sex, but we're just not having it. You know, what changes do you need to start having sex? Amy, have you interviewed and talked to people about sexual communal strength, people on both sides? I have. More specifically, I've asked people the types of things that they might do to meet their partner's sexual needs. And one of the things that comes up the most is this idea of having sex when you're not necessarily in the mood for sex. Um, And I agree with everything that Ian says. It's very interesting to me how when we talk about sexuality, these issues of, of consent and of coercion do often come up when I talk about this work. Um, and I understand why, but what's always interesting is that, you know, there's other, I do other work on sacrifices in relationships and so things that people might do for their partners. And when we talk about sacrifices that aren't in the domain of sexuality, so, you know, going to your partner's work function when you'd rather stay home and relax or giving your partner a back massage when you're not really in the mood to do so, those same kinds of issues don't come up. So I agree that, you know, we're not talking about situations where a person feels coerced, like feels like if they don't have sex and their partner, you know, will be angry or abusive towards them or situations when they just don't physically feel like, you know, they're able or they can. But in terms of situations where they're willing, but perhaps not high in desire. um, And often what we found is that even in those situations, people end up feeling more satisfied with their relationship and they get to that sexual connection. It's also like, what's that phrase? Fake it till you make it. Like there is like a certain truth to like, just kind of. Right. So I'm curious to know, Ian and Amy, if either one of you has ever made a sexual resolution if you have a sexual schedule? And if so, if you're comfortable talking to our listeners about it. Amy? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I had a baby this year. I have an 11-month-old daughter right now. And so we didn't necessarily make sort of this New Year's resolution. But when we had our daughter, we, my partner and I talked about you know, trying to maintain our sexual connection and our own connection, our relationship. Um, So, I mean, we, I, I guess in terms of the weekly sex thing, we don't necessarily put a number on it, but we do try to be regularly connected, but also acknowledge, we also try to be realistic about what we're able to accomplish. We both work outside the home. Um, we have this baby to care for and, uh, and we have a lot going on. So we do try to maintain the sexual connection. And, and really what that means is when a certain amount of time goes by or when one of us is feeling disconnected, we bring that up in our relationship and then we do our best to try to find that time and that space um, to, to reconnect. So whether that's like getting a babysitter for our daughter or, you know, having a night where neither one of us work or make other plans and just kind of have that connection with each other. Um, So I like this idea of kind of a resolution and maybe it's something now like coming into a new year that, you know, I can revisit with my partner and we can think about, like reflect on how the past year's been and then if there's anything that we'd like to change moving forward. Um, I want to wrap up by thinking a little bit about what kinds of resolutions people could make about their sex lives because I think that when people think about New Year's resolutions, they often think about their diet, they think about exercise, they think about other aspects of their health. Um, But as we know, sex is a huge part of what can make you healthy. What are a, what's a way that a couple or individual could approach a sexual resolution? 
Sure. Well, I mean, I'll just chime in. I'll say that if you build on on Amy's research and you sort of combine it with the uh, ebook that I wrote in my my own sort of clinical thinking, I think you come up with a recipe where you are, you and your partner are committing to having sex once a week, and you're putting it on the schedule, and you're prioritizing it. Now, I think beyond once a week, it's not just uh, the quantity of sex you're having, I think that there really is a lot to be said for quality and for the variety of sex you're having. And uh, very often we compare uh, sex to food. And uh, a friend of mine, Susanna Asenza, who's a remarkable sex therapist, has sort of championed this idea of sex menus and couples putting together their sex menus. I kind of believe like with food, the way we have a food pyramid that has these different food groups that are sort of essential to leading a nutritiously balanced life, I think there's kind of like a sex pyramid with different uh, groups of sex that you should be indulging in. And so I think you need to go on, you need to make that infographic, that triangle <laughs> that maybe the FDA can start will, to, right? uh, to release that. And, and I think at the base of the pyramid would just be um, attached lovemaking. Okay. I mean, I think that Feeling securely attached for, to your partner, being able to make love to your partner, being able to have make love that's an emotional experience, I think is at the basis of a, of a committed long-term relationship. And I think that fuels lots of other types of sex from there. I, I can let Amy chime in or I can work up from the pyramid, whatever you I'd want. I'd like to, Amy, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I really like what Ian said. I guess what I would add to it is if you are going to commit to having sort of regular, if it's once a week or sex with your partner, to also think about focusing on the reasons why you're having sex or what you might enjoy in having sex. Because one of the risks is if you sort of set up, you know, I'm going to have sex this often, but then you go into it or one partner goes into it sort of begrudgingly then it's unlikely to be as fulfilling an experience as it could be. So some of the work that I've done is on sexual motivation or the reasons why people have sex with their partner. And what we know is that when people focus on these reasons um, to engage in sex, like to connect with their partner, to enhance the intimacy in their relationship, even to see their partner experiencing pleasure, so focusing on you know these positive outcomes they might experience, they have better sexual experiences and they feel a stronger connection with their partner. Um, whereas if people kind of go into it thinking like, oh, I'll just do it because I want to avoid having a fight or, you know, they feel obligated perhaps because they've sort of scheduled it, then they, they have much less enjoyable experiences. So I guess what I would encourage people to do is to focus on having a regular sexual connection with your partner. And when you're doing that, to think about what you might enjoy out of that experience, especially if you tend to be the lower desire partner in the relationship. So maybe you don't have that sort of spontaneous desire that Ian was talking about, but maybe you do really want to feel that connection to your partner, or maybe you like seeing them happy, or maybe you know that you're going to feel, you know, a stronger sense of your relationship afterwards. So to sort of focus on those things going into it, I think that can help you know, maximize what you're getting out of the experiences that you're having. A lot of people get into sex ruts because of how busy they are or how busy they think they are and that it becomes, you know, you hear people talking about it's just another thing on the list. It's something I have to cross off. And actually, if you flip that and you recognize it as the stress release that it is, it kind of reframes the whole thing. I have a friend who is like, I can't go to the gym every day. I don't have time, but I can have sex once a week and still get a great workout. You know, I mean, you don't. And I know that's not the most romantic way to think about it, but it's 
practical. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Actually, the second uh, sort of row in the pyramid building up, uh, the first was sort of attached lovemaking. The second was sort of just sex for the sake of sex as a stress reliever. That could be a a quickie you have with your partner that maybe doesn't even result in an orgasm. Uh, It can be uh, sex with yourself. I think having sex with yourself and keeping yourself eroticized is really a vital uh, vital importance. from there building up, I, I really think that um, sex that really is creative and imaginative and really engages taboos, things that you wouldn't really ever go out and do in actual life, but you can think about in the company of your beloved partner. And then my fourth group would be all of the different sensual pathways, sight, sound, touch, taste, smell, that that often... Uh, get ignored. Again, I think the infographic needs to come next. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Ian, thanks again for coming. And Amy, it was great to talk to you too. Yes, thanks for having me. I want to thank my guests today, Ian Kerner, sex therapist and author, and Amy Muse, a sex researcher from the University of Toronto. Thanks for joining me today on The Labor of Love. If you have a domestic quandary and would like to be a guest on our show, or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please email us at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Tim Einenkel, and our engineer, Zach Dinerstein. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find three more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at itunes.com slash panoply or at panoply.fm. Happy New Year. Thank you.